Who Rules the World? A new podcast by European Union youth delegates Lucia and Nadia on SoundCloud and other platforms. I am Lucia. And I'm Nadia. In Who Rules the World podcast, we will talk about the European Union and United Nations and all the burning world issues that our generation will have to face when our time comes to rule the world. Hello and welcome to this episode of Who Rules the World podcast. We are marking the International Day of Multilateralism and Diplomacy for Peace on April 24th. And I'm really excited that we today have the guest Richard Gowen, who is UN Director for the International Crisis Group. I've been really excited about this period also because I think for a lot of young people, multilateralism can be quite complicated. I myself had to practice even saying the word multilateralism a few times when we get started. So really great to have this episode to, to elaborate on this specific word. But before we get started, go in with your mind, uh, you know, please uh, introducing yourself and say a bit about how you work and, and what you focus on. Okay, well, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, I am the UN director for an organization called the International Crisis Group. Uh, Crisis Group is a conflict prevention organization, um, and that means that I have colleagues who go to dangerous places like Afghanistan um, or live in unstable countries like Venezuela, and their job is to tell us what is going on on the ground in some very, very difficult settings. My job is a bit easier. Um, I sit in New York and I have to talk to UN officials, I have to talk to diplomats here about what my colleagues are seeing in places like Afghanistan and what we think they could do to make the situation a a little bit better. Uh, So maybe tell us quickly what is multilateralism, why is it important that we have these multilateral systems? Um, And also, as you mentioned, you know, we work in crisis prevention. How would maybe the world look like if we didn't have the United Nations and such agencies? Multilateralism is, it's a bit like Wi-Fi. I mean, we are now so used to the fact that we have Wi-Fi, we can sort of open a laptop or turn on our phone anywhere and we can get it get a signal. Um, And in a funny way, the multilateral system is like that. States um, have come together over the last hundred years to set up organizations that really affect every part of our daily life. So, you know, people don't really get letters anymore, but when you do get a letter or when you get a parcel from abroad, there are rules set by something called the Universal Postal Union Mm. about how states cooperate on mail. Um, sort of everything from climate change to uh, cooperation on migration uh, to international crisis management now works through organizations like the United Nations um, or related organizations like the World Bank. You know, these, these organizations basically exist to make the world run. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they don't work very well. And clearly, over the last year, we have watched Russia's war on Ukraine, and there have been a lot of people saying, why you know, why can't the UN stop Moscow invading its neighbors? Um, I think that's a completely valid and quite painful question. But actually, we sort of ignore the fact that in many aspects of international economic life, 
national political life, we have multilateral organizations where states get together, make compromises, and they, they work reasonably well. And I think it's actually now almost impossible to imagine what a world without uh, multilateral organizations would, would look like. Mm. Um, you know, just to take one example that we work on a lot, um, when you have a crisis in a place like Syria um, or, or Afghanistan, you know, there are organizations like the World Food Program that make sure that people get food um, in desperate situations. Uh, there's a refugees agency that helps people fleeing the country. Uh, we have UNICEF, the children's agency that sort of helps protect kids in these situations. If you were to take them all away, a horrible situation like the situation in Syria would just become vastly worse. And you would be seeing starvation, you would be seeing human suffering on a scale even greater than that which we have seen. And I, I think that it's so easy to say, oh, you know, the UN is rubbish, oh, the UN is bureaucratic. And sometimes the UN is super bureaucratic and quite boring. But you know, just in those, in those really urgent situations in particular, UN agencies are making the difference between a, a bad a bad situation and just an appalling situation we can't really envisage. Mm. Yeah, really uh, interesting and, and really horrible also to hear about all the things. And I think that, that kind of also leads us to, to the next question, because quite often when we hear about stories like that and, and when you as a young person follow the media or even read some of the expert reports, uh, you kind of feel like the world is a quite horrible place with Russians' aggression and Afghanistan and all those things. Uh, do you maybe have some of the good examples that you can elaborate on where you could see that multilateralism actually works and where there is conflicts that are not you know, totally horrible, but maybe only a bit horrible because we, we worked on it together? Yeah, I mean, look, it is, it is tough work and you know, we're we're going to focus on conflict today because that's what I, I work on. I mean, I should say that, you know, there are amazing people working through the UN to gain like, really positive outcomes on issues like women's empowerment. And I think that you know, there's a lot of very good positive work happening. It so happens that I work on the, the bit of the multilateral system that deals with the nasty stuff. And frankly, also a bit of a multilateral system that fails quite a lot because you know, whether you're a government or an organization like the EU or an organization like the UN, dealing with conflict is hard. Um, and how we define success in dealing with conflict um, you know, can require sort of lowering our ambitions. We'd all like world peace, but... Um, Getting to world peace has so far proved um, impossible for humanity. Um, what the UN can do is go into some conflicts and help, firstly, warring parties settle their differences um, and then sort of start to get countries back on their feet. And you know, there are actually quite a lot of successful examples of that. If you look at uh, Kosovo and the Balkans, for example, um, you know, Kosovo is a state that initially was built up by the UN. The UN um, was effectively the government of Kosovo from 1999 to 2007, 2008. It wasn't always popular, 
there were a lot of tensions between the UN and the people of Kosovo, but the police force, the courts, the system we have in Kosovo was, was started by the UN. Um, now, there are, there are places where the UN can't even achieve that level of conflict resolution. And so sometimes what the UN is doing is basically just trying to ease violence. I mean, we've had a horrible war in Yemen um, within the last decade. Last year, the UN envoy um, to Yemen got both sides to agree to a truce. And that did lower the level of violence, and it did allow more aid to get into the suffering. It wasn't perfect. The war hasn't ended, but the UN negotiated that. And then if you look at Ukraine, I mean, no, the UN has not been able to end the war in Ukraine. But um, last year, Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General, um, mediated uh, this initiative, the Black Sea Grain Initiative, that allowed Ukraine to export its its food, its food supplies to the rest of the world. Mm. And that got food to people in the Horn of Africa and other, other regions who were facing facing famine conditions. So you know, sometimes the UN can achieve a lot in terms of conflict resolution. Sometimes it can only achieve small steps to mitigate a crisis. But you know, it's still a pretty unique actor across that range of, of activities. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So you mentioned the Secretary General and uh, recently he proposed or showed the Our Common Agenda report where there was a couple of proposals for what we can do to reform the UN to make it more fit for purpose and to better address the challenges faced by humanity. What do you think about those proposals and do you think that they can actually you know, help you and your colleagues work in actually creating less dangerous situations? Also, the Common Agenda is a very wide-ranging report, and some of the most interesting stuff in the report is not really focused on uh, my specific area of focus, which is its conflict. So, for example, there's a proposal for a new pact on digital issues that you know, could be a platform for countries to work on uh, getting access to the internet expanded to I think it's around two billion people worldwide who still don't have internet access. And if, if you if you can think of one thing that would help people in very poor countries sort of accelerate economic development, it would be being wired into the web with all the knowledge that brings, all of the contacts that, that brings. So that's something which the UN is looking at. Simultaneously, the UN is looking at the dark side of the internet, it's, it's looking at ways to try and limit Know, disinformation and trolling on social media, seeing if you could have an international pact on that. Um, you know, th these are really, really interesting areas of uh, discussion, but they're, they're not so much what I focus on. Um, is, as part of the common agenda, Guterres called for something called a new agenda for peace, which is going to be a sort of a document laying out how we deal with the world's security problems. Now, I think we have to be realistic. The fact that the UN produces a document probably doesn't bother Mr. Putin in the Kremlin very much. He's like, oh, no, a UN document. I better sort of, you know, I better stop all my wars. Um, that is not going to happen. Um, but I think what, uh, what Guterres is going to be able to do is talk about, for example, how we should provide economic aid to countries in North Africa more effectively so that you don't see the sort of instability we've seen recently in in the Sahel. Um, and you know, that if you can reduce that sort of economic instability, you also sort of 
would use refugee flows, you would, you would use human suffering. I think that would be very positive. Um, he'll also talk about some of the, you know, the UN's better known activities, the Blue Helmet Peace Operations um, in places like South Sudan. I think you know, we need to find ways to improve how UN peacekeepers protect um, civilians in, in dangerous places. So, I mean, this, this report, um, I don't think it will, I, I don't think actually it will gain as much attention as the idea of a, a digital compact, sort of getting everyone linked into the World Wide Web. But it, it should help focus debate on what we need to do to make international security a, a little bit more resilient. So apart from the multilateralism day that we're celebrating on the 24th of April, we are also celebrating another very important uh, anniversary that's a bit closer to home, closer to Europe, and that is the Peace and Unity in Europe Day, which we celebrate on the May, May 9th. Um, and this date marks the anniversary of the historic Schuman Declaration, which kind of sets this new form of political cooperation in Europe and also made wars between the Europe's nations uh, unthinkable. And this means that also it's kind of, you know, in Europe's DNA that uh, we believe in effective multilateralism. And if I maybe quote uh, high, uh, high representative of European uh, Union, uh, Mr. Borrell, um, he once said uh, that multilateralism matters because it works, because we cannot be multilateralists alone. At the time of growing skepticism, we must demonstrate the benefit and relevance of the multilateral systems. So where do you also maybe see the role of the European Union in reinforcing the multilateral system? Uh, this is, I mean, this is a, a question that's close to my heart um, because uh, I was a young person once too, and um, my early research going back 20 years was um, on strengthening relations between the EU and the UN. Um, Obviously, my country has left the EU in the meantime, but I still care quite a lot about these issues. I mean, I, I think the EU plays a huge role underpinning the work of the UN. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is in part because European countries remain, uh, after the US, um, the most significant donors to uh, the humanitarian work of the UN. There's a lot of talk about how, how China is playing a bigger role in the UN these days. But if you look at the budgets of an organization like the World Food Program, um, the EU institutions, Germany, um, other European countries are sort of absolutely key donors. Mm -hmm. So if, if Europe stopped paying for the UN, there would be a lot less UN. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it goes beyond the money. I think that you'll find that in many processes around the uh, around the multilateral system, it's European countries and sometimes the EU sort of as a block that are sort of leading complex negotiations. And uh, I think EU diplomats know how to work in sort of complex multinational settings because that's what they do at home. And so when, when you come to the UN, that experience is, is very helpful. So I think without the EU, we'd have a much less well-functioning UN. And I think that there was an interesting laboratory test of that during the Trump administration, because you had a US administration that was in many ways suspicious of the UN and in some ways actively anti-UN. Mm -hmm. And in that period, we saw that European countries 
got together and played a big, big part in just keeping UN diplomacy going and sort of reassuring the rest of the world that um, the West wasn't walking away from the UN. Now, we should also be realistic. We have colleagues, we have friends from Africa, from Asia, from, from Latin America, who sometimes say, okay, but you know, the world is changing. Europe's share of the global economy and global power is shrinking. The time has come for our regions to have a bigger part in the way the UN runs. And so, for example, the African group find it very frustrating that you have two European countries, former colonial countries, sitting in the Security Council, but there is no permanent African member of the Security Council. And so there is, you know, there is some resentment. It's not all cuddly um, uh, sort of cooperation. But nonetheless, I think that everyone would admit that underneath this all, you know, the EU continues to be sort of the anchor of a lot of diplomacy and a lot of international cooperation. Maybe how do you see also the role of young people in multilateral systems? Yeah, I think if the UN has an underlying problem, one of the underlying problems is that the world is changing very fast. And, you know, the way that information technology, the way that artificial intelligence is, is developing um, is, is really going to challenge the, the whole UN system because we have a system that was designed in the 1940s and is designed to sort of handle old school but recurrent problems like refugee flows. Um, it struggles with um, a a challenge like climate change. Um, and we just don't know if the UN is going to be able to deal with the sort of very, very rapid burst in, in AI and computer. The current generation of um, senior UN officials, UN leaders, grew up in a different world and uh, don't necessarily fully understand uh, some of these new forces and how they're changing society. And so I think, that, you know, again, Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General, has really emphasised the need for greater youth input into the UN. Um, and, you know, he's really tried to work with youth groups on issues like climate change because he recognises that um, if you don't have young people talking about their concerns, you're just not going to understand the challenges we face. And that's, that's you know, young people in Europe, but it's young people in Africa where, you know, People under 25 make up, I think, more than half the population on the continent. Mm. If we're not talking about what young Africans want and the challenges they face, then we can send all the peacekeepers we like to places like South Sudan, but we're not dealing with what really worries a, you know, a majority of, of Africans today. Mm. So I think the bottom line of this conversation is that we have to invest and we have to believe in effective multilateral systems for the sake of peace, of climate, of education, and of young people at the end of the day. Um, and on this point, uh, thank you very much, Mr. Govan, for taking the time to talk with us. Um, it's been very insightful conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was Who Rules the World podcast by European Union Youth Delegates, Lucia and Nadia. WRW coming soon with next episode on SoundCloud and other platforms.